on Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Uh, you will need your Bibles tonight and pray that you follow along with us. But in, in Hebrews chapter 2, as we're finishing actually the, the lesson we started last week, this is the part 2 of last week's lesson, that we saw our perfect Savior and our help. Our perfect Savior and our help from last week. We had started talking about this great salvation which is introduced in chapter 2 when he says in chapter 2 verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we see the momentum is building in Hebrews chapter 1 and, and into Hebrews chapter 2. But as we jump back and we see this, this great salvation, we see it uh, the, con the classic condition of man's condition and how God has provided the solution of salvation. In this whole book, if, if you even come back at a bigger bird's eye view, remember the writer of the Hebrews was writing to the Jews the, uh, there in Jerusalem. And we know that the word of God may not have been written exactly to us, but it's been written for us. So we certainly can take uh, and glean from this book. But I think it would also, as Bible students, serve us better to put on the mind of the Jew who's reading this letter, uh, put on the mind of the Judaism, the Mosaic law, everything that they had believed, uh, put on the time frame of when this letter was being read, uh, how Jesus, I mean, it was just a few years after Jesus had rose up and ascended, and we see the, the church spreading the word, the gospel. We see Gentiles being saved. We see the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled, uh, even in that time as the Gentiles were having mercy. And so the, the writer of the Hebrews is referencing right away how Jesus is better. And we saw how early that Jesus is better than the angels. Well, of course he's, he's better than the angels. There's not a lot of uh, debate about that, if you think about that, because we know that the angels are his creation. So, of course, he's by nature better than the angels. But what I believe this is really getting into, the, the dominant theme, remember, put, put your Jew mind on, is the Jews associated the law with the angels. Now, why? Because the angels were a divine presence and they gave the law to Moses. The, they, they call it the mediation of the law. So you have divine beings, angels, who deliver the Mosaic law to Moses there on Mount Sinai. And so when we talk about how Jesus is better than the angels, that Jesus has brought in a new covenant. And how much better Jesus is than the angels. I mean, uh, here is a, a God himself delivering uh, the word. And so there's that argument from chapter one, how Jesus is better, because he's the son. He is God the son. And so by nature, he's better. By sovereignty, he's better. He's the creator. He's a sustainer of all things. And we see in this world to come, in, in verse 10 of chapter 1 of Hebrews, he says, and Thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hand. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall wax old, 
as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. In verse 14, he talks about the angels. And are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So we see that not only is this salvation which Christ has brought through the new covenant, and we know that his blood is the new covenant, uh, has sealed the, the new covenant, we see that we not only inherit a spiritual reconciliation and restoration to God by Jesus' work, but also we will physically be restored. And so as chapter 2 begins, it's really what the thrust of in two verses, in chapter 2 and verse 2 through 3, we see that the word that Jesus spoke is greater than the communication of the old covenant, that the communication of the old covenant was through the angels. And so it, we do know that, again, Jesus is better than the angels. And, I, you know, just stepping back and from an obvious point of view, that's true. But if you associate how the angels delivered the law, that's really the, 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 the thrust underneath what it's saying is the word spoken by Christ himself of the new way. He's the new and living way. How much better it is. And if back then in the Old Testament, if they didn't escape punishment for breaking that covenant, how much more? Uh, and that's what it says in, in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation which Jesus himself has brought in? Not only did Jesus himself give us the word, but it was witnessed by the apostles, and it was testified of God through miracle signs and wonders. And so when he's writing to the Hebrews in verse 5, he, he's also saying, look, the angels are going to have nothing to do with this new world as far as dominance of this new world, which Jesus is going to bring in, how he's going to change everything and then make it new. So verse 5, if you're still on the old covenant, what are the promises of the old covenant of, of concerning the heaven, concerning the new world to come? Uh, we see that the Old Covenant has fulfilled its purpose, and its purpose and its design was to point to the better. It was to point to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says many times, now, had we been able to be righteous through the Old, certainly we would have been. And it's not that the law was weak, is we were weak. And that's what he says in Romans chapter 8, is that the law was weak in the flesh, and God sending his own son uh, to condemn sin in the flesh. So we see in verse 5 that he's talking about this world to come is not under subjection of the old covenant or the old way of transmission or the angels, but it is of Christ. So the charge to the Jews is put this old covenant into perspective, put the mediation of the old covenant into perspective of its purpose and how the fulfillment of it is in Christ and the finality of God's revelation is in Jesus Christ. We do not look for the Messiah anymore. Jesus is final. He's fulfilled the old and he is the final revelation of God. So there right now should be, so how does this speak to us? We see how it speaks to the Jew uh, 
uh, how they are not to uh, think that things of the old covenant were better than what Jesus has done. But what about to us? What this is to us is there should be no mediator or mediation apart from Jesus Christ. There shouldn't be nothing. It is. It all ends with Christ. He, Jesus is God's final word. There's no new revelation. No new revelation. Uh, there is no modern day apostles who are receiving new revelation. There are no earthly mediators. There's no earthly priests where we go to them and then they go to Jesus. No, all things, he is the last, he's the final, and he's the fulfillment of all things. So Jesus, and that's what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. So the plead to them and I, I read after uh, uh, Shriner, and I enjoy reading after him, and I can't think of his first name. I think it's, uh, it's either Todd or Tom. But he has this to say. This has kind of been the plea to the, to the Hebrews. Do not abandon the Son of God in the face of persecution, in the face of religious pressure, family pressure, peer pressure. There does not exist one adequate reason to allow your faith to carelessly drift back to the old covenant, having now been enlightened of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no reason for you to drift from the words which we have heard. And that's when chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And that's what that word means, is drift. Okay, so as we finish last week's lesson, the last week's lesson was the, the accomplishment of Jesus in salvation. We see that in verse 9, we, I think we had gotten from verse 9 all the way to verse 14, but Jesus has, we see him becoming our substitute in verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was born to die. He was born to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, and to suffer and die. But it says, in his suffering, he was crowned with glory and honor in chapter 2, verse 9, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So Jesus tasted my death. And uh, we saw last week that that could, in the, in the Greek, kind of be categorized or, or recalibrated to say that Jesus tasted every death. Uh, we know that Jesus, he was afflicted. He was a man of sorrows. He suffered. And not only did he suffer death, but he also suffered the second death, the, the death that we see, uh, the eternal death, the death that I would have had to pay for, that I would have had to suffer, and that I would never be able to fully pay. And Jesus fully paid the second death that I should have had. So he tasted that death, and that's a Jewish idiom, that in every way that Jesus had become acquainted with death for us. So in verse 10, in verse 10 it, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom 
are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And so we saw that how it, for it became him. That means that Jesus did what was consistent with his character. And we see the consistency of Jesus's character is he's the creator of all things. So he's the author. And he, since he's the author, he's also the finisher. So we see that in creation. He says in all things that it would be, so it became him to have to come, be born, to die, and to raise again. So not only did he accomplish salvation, he authored it, accomplished it, and finished it. So he has done, that's his character. That's who he's always been. And he is going to succeed in our salvation because that's who he is. So verse 11, so we see the, the first two points we saw last week was he is our substitute and that taste death for every man. We also saw that in the context that he is talking about his chosen, his elect, his sheep. Now, would I just carelessly say that, just assume that in verse 9? No, because it tells us later exactly who he died for. And look at verse 10, the many sons, for it became him for whom are all things by him, by whom are all things in bringing the many sons unto glory. Verse 11, it is the sanctified for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Now look at verse 12. He's saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. So he died for his brethren. He, in the midst of the church, he died for his church. Now, did you notice all of the, the people who are associated in these later verses? Uh, they are specific people. And so, Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. There's the biggest one. Who did Jesus die for? The ones who God has given him. The children who God has given him. So last week we, we saw John chapter 10. And he was addressing the Pharisees. And the Pharisees did not believe him. And Jesus answers the questions that they do not believe him because they are not his sheep. And so that is why men and women do not believe. They are not his sheep. Because he goes on to say, his sheep hear his voice. And a stranger will they not hear. And they, we hear his voice and we come to him. We follow him. That he is known of us and he knows us. And we hear him when he calls. And our prayer today is that, that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You hear his call unto you. And that you receive him today for salvation. Because then he talks about him being the captain of our salvation in verse 10. And we saw that that word means pioneer. And a pioneer is someone who blazes a trail and makes a way. Someone who is followed by the path that they have made. And I think it's really important as we uh, reiterate this again, because this is going to help us in these next following verses, because the accomplishments that Jesus made includes all of our future blessings 
that are a direct result of the victory Jesus had. Now think about that. All of our blessings and all of our future blessings is because Jesus came, put on the form of mankind, suffered, and rose again, and defeated death. And the way he has pioneered our way, and we follow him, and so any future blessing which we have is only because Jesus did that. Otherwise, we're all dead in sins and trespasses, and we have no hope. Okay, so we had talked briefly about verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. What has Jesus done? Now think about the, the comparison. Think about the difference with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New. What has Jesus done? He has separated unto himself a people, his chosen. That's what sanctified means. Sanctified means to, to separate, to make holy. Now, if you want to go back and look at our Romans series in Romans chapter 6, which I talk about this last week, I spoke about the two aspects of sanctification. You have a positional sanctification and you have a practical sanctification. That means holiness. For it says in verse 11, he that sanctifieth, which is Jesus, and they who are sanctified, were the recipients of Jesus's action of separating us from where we were to himself for a purpose. That's what sanctification, the definition of sanctification. That's holiness. There is a positional holiness and there's a practical holiness, just like sanctification. We need to understand that the holiness which God sees in me, and I pray in you, is not your internal holiness, not your intrinsic holiness. This is not what justifies you. It is the holiness of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ's righteousness. So positionally, I am holy because Jesus is holy. I am righteous because it's Jesus's righteousness. So he has sanctified us. He has brought us. What a marvelous thing. What a, a great salvation that is, is that he, I was not able to come to him. He came to me. He did everything for me. And he even brought me to himself positionally. I'm positionally justified. It's just as if I never sinned because of Jesus's just because of Jesus's righteousness. But there's also the practical side of sanctification. That is the side where we're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the holiness that's still in progress. That's our sanctification. That's the imparted righteousness. That's us working out what God has worked in. So that's us in our Christian walk. All right. So here's where I really want to hit the ground running tonight is at the end of verse 11. Hopefully we get through eight, verse 18. He says, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children 
which God hath given me. Now here's a beautiful parallel. The writer is writing here in Hebrews to speak about Jesus in Psalm 22. Turn with me to Psalm 22. Keep your hands here. And as soon as I start reading Psalm 22, it's going to jump out at you uh, immediately. So the beginning of um, all of Psalm 22 is a testament and truth that God is faithful to deliver his own. So Psalm 22, the person in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip and shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And so we also see in verse 18, look down in verse 18, he says, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. We see uh, the plead with God, save me, deliver me, haste to help me. In verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. What we see is the trusting one has become the delivered one. Now, we know this is a messianic psalm. We know that Jesus trusted in God. We know that Jesus had faith in God. We know that Jesus prayed and he read the word. And in so many ways, we follow Jesus, not just in death and the burial and the resurrection and the victory which we have, but we also, we have, we go with the same faith in God and we have the same prayers that God would deliver us. But we see the trusting one has become the delivered one. This is talking about God's faithfulness to deliver them. Now, starting in verse 22, the psalm shifts from the suffering one now has become the exalted one. In verse 22, he says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Now, that looks familiar, doesn't it? Because that's in Hebrews chapter 2. That's where we just were in verse 12. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation while I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. So we see that the praise is of the great congregation in verse 25. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. 
Now also notice about this psalm that the victory that Jesus has is not just his alone, but we will share in it. All the family will share in Jesus's victory. Look at verse 26. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. And now also look at verse 31. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. A beautiful parallel in Psalm 22, come back to Hebrews chapter 2, that he is speaking here and he is identifying Psalm 22 with our Lord, with Jesus. In verse 12, this is what he's done. He says that in verse, at the end of verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. We see the family orientation of this. In verse 12, I saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. So not only in Psalm 22 did we see the suffering one who is exalted, but we also saw him that who is delivered. The trusting one is delivered. And so we see that Jesus has brought us to him. In verse 10, that's the way he's the captain of our salvation, the pioneer. He has brought us to him. But the rest of this chapter, and I believe what is really being taught here, is look at this identification which we have with Jesus. We do not have identification with the angels, but we do with Jesus. Jesus has come and partook of our flesh and our blood. And that's actually the next verse. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, a beautiful uh, word study here in verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers, that Greek in partakers is talking about, the Greek word is koinonia, which if you think about it, we studied from the conine Greek, which means the common language, the tongue of the people. That partakers in verse 14 at the very beginning, that is the same word. It means common. It means fellowship. We have this alike. What do you and I have in common? Flesh and blood. But when it talks about Jesus here, he says he also himself likewise took part. That word took part is not the same Greek word. That Greek word is medeko. And what that means is to take hold of something that is not naturally your own kind. Jesus is not flesh and blood. He took on our flesh and blood. Jesus by nature was not flesh and blood. We are. So we have that in common. But Jesus took that onto himself. He took the fellowship of our flesh and blood upon himself so that we might be able to partake of his divine nature. Now think about that. Jesus took the part 
of us onto him so that we could take his part onto us. And 1 Peter, uh, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, states that truth. Where, it says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He took part, Medeco, so that we could take part, Medeco. He took part of us so that way we could take part of him. We're brethren. We have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And that is the thrust of what he's saying in verse 14. And it's beautiful. Why did he do that? Well, look, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The angels cannot die. God cannot die. The only way he could die was to take on flesh, was to take on this death. Why did he do that? So that he could destroy it. What love? What love is that? That, you know, we saw in verse 8 how, you know, death was not part of original creation. Death is an intruder. Sorrow and suffering is an intruder and because of sin. But we see in verse 8 that after God's original design, we do not have everything under our feet. Death has not been put under our feet, but through Jesus Christ. Jesus has defeated death. Now look at this. So not only is Jesus our substitute, verse 10, he's our surety, which we talked about last week, Jesus, our righteousness. Um, please go back and look and see how we have that in common. That's, that's the holiness which God sees. He sees Jesus Christ's righteousness in so much that we, he is not ashamed to be called our brethren, and God is not ashamed to be called our God. Now, that's in Hebrews chapter, that's on down. Um, I don't have that quote right off the top of my head, but uh, he, when he talks about those who are looking for a better country, God said that he was not ashamed to be called their God. But Jesus is our conqueror. He's our substitute, our surety, our sanctifier, our captain, and our conqueror. He has conquered death. So it says the power of death. Death is under his feet. And because death is under Jesus' feet, it is also under our feet. Jesus accomplished the man of Psalm 8. Jesus accomplished the, he's the last Adam. He was the perfect human. He accomplished the design that God had made of man, that we, sh that we should glorify him, be thankful, and that we should fellowship with God, and that we should have rulership of the earth. Well, he didn't promise that rulership to the angels. He didn't promise that rulership to the old covenant. Those weren't the promises. But through Jesus, we have those promises. And because we're in Jesus, because we have this, the fellowship of his sufferings and the fellowship of his righteousness to where we are children, we're in the royal kingdom, we're fellow heirs, we're joint heirs with Christ. Isn't it wonderful that he even went on before us? He has tasted the death. He's, he's tasted eternal punishment. He tasted hell and the grave and everything for me. And he was satisfactory in doing that because God rose him from the dead. He was raised again for our justification. So the surety, 
Remember we talked about surety last week, that it, think of it as a cosigner. A surety is someone who takes on the responsibility of someone else's debt. And Jesus did that for my debt, and I pray your debt if you believe in him. And you are one of the saved. That means your debt too. And he says, from the power of death in verse 14, he might destroy him, Satan, that had the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The thing that terrifies people the most is death. But when we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we understand we are in him. <laughs> we are in him. And he is in us. And everything that Jesus did victorious, we did. That's what I said. All of our future blessings, heaven, forgiveness, everything is because of what Jesus did. And what did he do? He came and he suffered and he tasted death. And verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Jesus didn't come to die and make atonement for the angels. He did that for us. Also, we identify we are in fellowship with Jesus. We're not in fellowship with the angels. There's no identification with us in the angels. There's no identification, therefore, with the law, with the old covenant, with the Mosaic law. There's no fellowship in that. We are children and we are counted as children of God. Not only are we children of God, now think about that. We're brethren with Jesus, and we're children. We're both of those things. And so this fear of death that we had, it was, we used to have it, but now we do not have it. But Christ did not come to redeem angels in verse 16. He did not take on the nature of angels. Verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Now, behooved means his duty. So he's kind of summarizing, isn't he? We've already talked about this and seen this. So this is starting to click, starting to make sense. Verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor. That word succor means help. <laughs> He's able to help them that are tempted. What a beautiful identification Jesus has with us. He's our sympathizer. He knows he's been touched by our infirmities. He's been tempted like we are, but he had no sin. He tasted death as we are looking and we are, you know, we're decaying, right? I mean, we will face death. But he has gone on before us so that he may help us. Not just with salvation, but he is there. He's going to be there with us. Now, um, the Spirit helps our infirmities in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit will help us to die, which is taught in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we saw with Paul. Paul got towards the end of his life. 
And he said, you know, there was no one here with me. And uh, I had a conversation earlier and talking about that is, is the more you get towards the end of our Christian journey, our Christian pilgrimage, how it doesn't it just seem like there's just one thing after another uh, going on in your life. And it feels like the last lap is often a sprint of faith. How there's just one trial after another and after another. And, uh, you know, the Lord just refining our faith and it's making it as pure gold. And so it seems that, you know, here, but even more, how much comfort can we get knowing that the Lord has been tempted the way that we had been tempted? He, he understands our, our weak frame and our fail frame. He knows how we fail. And verse 17, he had to come. He had to identify with us. He had to be us. He had to die as one of us. And the, but he rose again. He conquered death. You know, oh, grave, where is thy victory? Death's where thy sting. What did, Jesus, what did Paul say? He says, but I thank God for the victory which we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was finally victorious over death. Um, and this should, when we think about how much different this is that Jesus did, how he came and he took on flesh, and so that he might be the merciful and faithful high priest in pertaining to the things of God and reconciling us. And we know he's going to restore us. And in verse 18, how he helps us, having been tempted in the same way, but yet without sin. This, this should honestly change your prayer life. It should. So when we go to the Lord in prayer, we know that we can go to him and say, Lord, I know you went through this. I know you went through sorrow. I know you went through suffering. I know you went through hunger and thirst and, and groaning of the Spirit and, and, and weeping uh, uh, to those who made him groan of spirit. We know that he has gone through all those things. And so we can, when we pray, we know that he knows what we're going through. And isn't it beautiful that this is chapter two? He is saying he is our great savior. Look at what Jesus, the son of God did. Now, last week I talked about how it was just beyond to a Hebrew, to a Jew. You know, they had this idea and conception of the conquering Davidic king, the one who would come and conquer, not take on the form of mankind and die, and not just die, any old death, but die of crucifixion. How crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the lowest. I mean, it was embarrassment. And we see that Jesus, in his humiliation, we see that because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, how God hath also highly exalted him. Isn't what Jesus did so praiseworthy? And look at the vast difference between what the writer of Hebrews is saying of the old covenant versus what Jesus has done. He's the final word of God. We do not look for another. 
We do not look for another Messiah. He is the Messiah. And though he came and suffered, and the Jews was beyond their, their, their comprehension that he should do that. But how many times do we see Paul and Jesus say that he must have suffered? He must have went to the cross. He must have put on the, the form of man, lived the perfect life, and died a vicarious death, raised again from the dead. And how it says that Jesus, opening up the scriptures, just opened up their minds and their hearts to how he has fulfilled all things, that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah. It's just he accomplished salvation. He accomplished it. He's our perfect Savior, and He's our help. Because of what He did, He can be our help. He can be your help in your time of need. Now, understanding just the vast difference of who He is versus the old covenant and the, the law mediated by angels and Moses, this should thrust verse 3 in chapter 2 even more in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them drift. Now, the Word of God does not drift. We drift from the Word of God. Remember how we spoke a few weeks ago that salvation is perseverance and faith. Genuine salvation is not just one profession of faith you had as a 10-year-old and then you've led, the, you've led the last 50, 20 years not even thinking of God. That's not a genuine salvation. A genuine salvation has perseverance and faith. It accompanies persistence. And that's because of God's power, not because of our power. We persevere because he has preserved us. He has died for his people. He's died for his sheep. He has died for his brethren. He has died for his church. He has died for the children which God has given him. So we persevere. So the message to the Hebrews was, let us not drift from the word which we have heard, but persevere in faith. Look at our almighty Savior Look at our beautiful Savior and what he's done. How he has taken even the fear of death away. He's taken the sting of death. And what would have seemed hopeless in our lives. <laughs> and he's made it a doorway. I have no doubt that when we come to die that he's going to lead us all the way. He's going to, I mean, he's going to, that's what 1 Peter chapter 4 references is that God will pour his spirit out upon you when that time comes. Now, he's talking to those who are being persecuted in the name of Christ. But I do believe when it comes to that time, just as Paul saw, even though everybody forsook him, he was not alone. And I believe at the time of death that he's going to give us his hand and he's going to lead us and guide us all the way through. We do not drift. There never will be a reason why you would drift in your faith and go back into the Mosaic law. There's no reason why you would want to come under the law when we're under grace. He is our substitute. He is our surety. He is our sanctifier. He is our captain. He is our conqueror of death, and he is our help in verse 18.
Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this study. How beautiful, Lord. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the understanding to understand your word. Father, thank you for loving us, dying for us, saving us, putting your love upon us. What a mighty work you've done where we will praise and lift you high. What a victory you have accomplished. What a victory that your children have in you. Oh, Father, how sweet it is and how overwhelming it is, Lord, that we just fall to our knees and thank you and praise you. Father, for those who are sick, we ask, Lord, that you help them. You know each heart and each need. Lord, we ask that you lift them up and help them and heal them. Father, help us in our temptation, in our time of need, in our trials. Father, we know that you will be with us. Father, may we just look to you, our author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.